I've been told that my sermons feel like they're four hours long. And since my 20 or 30 minute sermons feel like four hours, today I'm going to try a four hour sermon and see how that feels. And you all have Heather to thank for that. So, alright, now turn your Bibles today to the book of Daniel, if you would. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4, and today we're going to be uh, talking about who's in charge in this world. Who is in charge in this world? And that's, that's a pretty important, it's kind of a basic idea, but it's an important one because uh, it's easy to look around and see all the bad stuff going on in the world and say, oh, the devil, he's, well, he is in charge in this world. Or maybe, uh, maybe we're just really good at working out situations in our life and we might look around and say, I'm in charge in the world. Or maybe... Uh, we watch the news and we see all the stuff that's going on in Washington and we say the President or the Congress, they're the ones that are in charge. But the truth of the matter is that God alone is in charge. God is in charge. And that's a lesson that God had to teach Nebuchadnezzar in our text today. And that's what you'll see in just a, just a few moments. Now you might remember a few weeks ago we looked at Daniel chapter 3 and we had the incident where uh, Daniel made that, or not Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar made that great big idol. It was, it was overlaid in gold and and, uh, and he said, if you don't bow down and worship this idol, you're going into this fiery furnace. Remember that? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to do it, so they got thrown into the fire. But, uh, but God miraculously saved them alive from their ordeal. Now, every time something miraculous happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life, you remember uh, he had the dream and Daniel had interpreted or this incident with the fiery furnace, uh, all these miraculous things kept happening. And each time, Nebuchadnezzar was, was faced with the fact that God is the one who has the power. God is the one who's in control. And for a while, he would recognize that, and he would, he would call God the Most High God or something like that. But just like many in today's world, he did not worship and follow God alone. He would give lip service to him, but he wouldn't actually worship him alone. So where we pick up in Daniel chapter 4 is sometime after the fiery furnace. Now, we don't know how long it is. Many scholars think probably about 30 years. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he ruled for a long time. He ruled over 40 years. And uh, he, did a, he did a lot of projects to beautify and strengthen Babylon. Uh, he achieved a lot of military victories. One of the victories that he achieved was, you remember, uh, Assyria, they had taken the northern kingdom uh, captive and, and had exiled them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the one who took Judah, the southern kingdom, captive and exiled them. And, and this happened while Daniel and his friends were in Babylon. And so all these things that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had done, they, they began to make him pretty proud. He began to strut around like a peacock. And, and, and he began to defy God. And, and the lesson that his example teaches us is that God is sovereign. He's in control. And therefore, we need to humble ourselves. Otherwise, God may humble us. So look, if you would, at Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the people, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to, de to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. And I just want to pause for a moment here. Because this is this has a very different feel from, from the rest of Daniel. And the reason is because Daniel wrote all of this, but this is like an edict or a proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar made to his kingdom. So he had gone through the stuff we're going to read about,
something bad happens to us when we get humbled, we keep it secret, don't we? We're like, I'm not I'm not telling anybody. You ever fallen down a parking lot? What's the first thing you do? Who saw that? But I, well, now Nebuchadnezzar, he was humbled in a mighty way. And he told everybody. And so, so Daniel has taken this proclamation that the king has made, and he has included it in his in his writings here. So that's that's why it sounds a little bit different because it's first person. Nebuchadnezzar is the one speaking. Verse four. I Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. So he's done all these military things. He's conquered a lot of people. He's taken it easy in the palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related to him a dream, I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no, my, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with this interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it, was, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watch, watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted down and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and let the birds uh, from its and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed to that of a man. Uh, sorry. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the Most highest ruler over the realm of mankind. And bestows it on whomever he wishes. And sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream apply to those who hate you, and its interpretation to your adversaries. And I just want to stop there for a moment. Now, what lesson can we learn just from this little part at the very beginning? The first thing that I want you to see, and this will be fleshed out more as we go along, is that we need to recognize that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, this whole, this whole chapter is an illustration of this truth that God is sovereign. What does it mean to be sovereign? It means that God is in complete control. 
God is in control of everything. He rules. It means that He reigns. And we say, well, of course, He reigns and, and rules in the hearts of His believers, of His followers. We would expect that, but it, it means more than that. It means that also that He rules in the hearts and lives even of unbelievers. It means that God's in control of all people, even people that hate Him, even people like atheists who don't believe that He exists. He's in control of them. It means that God is in control of all events. He's in control of all of nature. You remember when, when the disciples were out in the boat? Jesus was in the boat sleeping, and what happened? The storm came up, and they said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And what did He do? He calmed the storm. God is in control of everything. And, 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 and no one can resist, successfully resist, His sovereign will. No one can resist God's sovereign will. Now, I want to make a distinction here because there's a difference between God's decrees and God's desires. There's a difference. There's a distinction. See, there are certain things that God will accomplish no matter what. There are certain things that God will bring about. He won't violate the, the free will of man, but He'll still accomplish those things. For instance, the plan of salvation. From the very beginning before creation even happened, God had a foreordained plan to bring about the salvation of mankind. And nobody, not Judas, not Pilate, not even the devil himself could stop that plan of salvation. On the other hand, there are things that God wants to see happen, but sometimes don't. What does 2 Peter 3.9 say? It says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell, but sometimes they do. There's a difference between God's decrees and God's desires. And, and so, so, so there's a sense in which no one can stop God from doing certain things. And that's what, that's what Nebuchadnezzar says in, there, in verse 35. Look down at what it says. Uh, verse 35. <coughs> it says, All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? That's very similar to what Job said in Job 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14.27, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? For he has stretched out his hand, who can turn it back? Psalm 2 says much the same thing. The nations rage, they, they come up with this, with this big plan, and God just looks down from heaven and he scoffs. He laughs at them because God is in control and we cannot stop it. Now there's a repetition all throughout verse, uh, all throughout chapter four, and whenever you see a repetition of of an idea or certain words in in the Bible, you need to you need to pay attention to that because oftentimes it's for emphasis. Now I want you to just scan down. Look at verse seventeen. Look, look towards the end. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it and bestows it on whom He wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Look down at verse 26. And it was and and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize what? That it is heaven that rules. Look at verse 32. Um, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time, or seven years, will pass over you until you recognize. The Most Highest Ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verses 34 and 35. 
For the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to Him, What have you done? Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all His works are true and His ways just. And He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now what's that saying? It's saying that God's in control. It's, it's just repeated over and over and over. It's like a great big sign saying, Hey, pay attention. God is in control. God is in control. God is the one who reigns. God rules. And it's just emphasizing it over and over and over to us. And the fact that God is in control is both, both a warning and a comfort to us. It's a warning to us because sometimes we like to try and take control, don't we? We like to, some of us are kind of control freaks, and we like to control all the details. But God's in control, not us. Uh, several years ago, I remember there was, it was real popular to see this bumper sticker that said something to the effect of, uh, my co-pilot is Jewish Carpenter. You remember seeing those? And then after a while, I, and that, that always bothered me, but I was never clever enough to come up with my own bumper sticker. But I saw somebody who did, who said what I had thought. Basically, it said, if your co-pilot is a Jewish carpenter, switch seats. And I thought, that's it right there. If, if Jesus is, is kind of your second, if, you, if he's your right-hand man, you need to switch seats. You need to let him be in the driver's seat. And, and he is in control, not us. No matter how we want to try, God is the one that's in control. You ever made a plan for your life? And God makes a different plan? And his plan's a lot better than yours, but man, we're wanting to go this way, and he wants to go that way. God's in control. He, he knows a lot better than we do. So it's, it's a warning to us to, to recognize that He's in control, but it's a comfort to us as well because no matter what we're going through, God's in control. You can't watch the news without hearing somebody talking about our economic situation. Guess what? He's in control. Well, what about all these rulers? What about all these leaders? What about all these government officials that don't follow God? He's in control. What about your job situation? Man, I'm, I'm stuck in a dead-end job. My boss is a jerk and, and all these things. God's in control. I don't have a job. I need one. God's in control. I'm sick. I have a, a, a terminal illness. God's in control. My kids, my grandkids are off in the far country. God's in control. This world is crumbling down around me. I've got personal stuff going on, work stuff. I mean, everything is going wrong. God's in control. It's a comfort to us that God is in control of everything. Now, that's not to say He's going to work it out the way that we want, but He's in control. Now, it's easy, I think, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, to talk about His power and, and, His, and His might and His strength and, and say, man, He is powerful, and totally disconnect that from His grace and His mercy. But those two things go hand in hand, because power without love is a dangerous thing. But God doesn't have power without love. It's power and love. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what happens in uh, verses 20 and following. Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, Daniel, I need to know what's going on. He says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm, I, hate, I, I hate to tell you this, and this is the Braddock uh, paraphrase. I hate to tell you this, but that tree, that tree is you. And so then the rest of it kind of follows. If you're the tree and they say chop down the tree and strip off its branches and, and all this stuff, and it's pretty easy to understand. Uh, you're going to be taken off the throne. 
and and all these all this glory that you have, all this foliage, all this all this fruit, all the you know all the peoples, all the animals, everybody's coming to get food from you. Uh, that's all going to be done away with for a while. But the stump's going to be left in the ground. There's going to be a band around it. And I, at, at first I was like, why on earth they do that? But then I got to think about tree stumps that we cut a tree down. And, and if you just leave them, sometimes those, those stumps will split and stuff. But if you have a band around it, it keeps that from happening. It keeps it whole with, with, the, with the hope that one day some more stuff will sprout from it. So the roots are still there. And, and it talks about there's, he's going to be given the mind of a beast. But one day, after seven periods of time, seven years passed, he's going, to, he's going to have that glory restored. He's going to return to the throne. Okay, so so he tells Nebuchadnezzar all this. And uh, let's, let's pick up in verse 28. Well, actually back up to verse 27. Daniel says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there might be a prolonging of your prosperity. Verse 28, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, so a full year passes, twelve months later he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Remember we talked, they had big flat roofs, they used them kind of like patios. Uh, he was walking on the roof, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as royal residence, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like the like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now here we see the mercy and the grace of God. We need to thank Him for His grace and mercy. And, and you might be looking at that and you say, Pastor, I'm phoning you up on the sovereignty part, but the grace and mercy, how do you see that in this passage? Because it seems to me like God kind of uh, dropped the hammer on Him, so to speak. Well, again, it, it's easy to, to, to focus so much on God's power we forget to look at His grace. But those things go hand in hand. Not just in the cross where we see it the most clearly, but also in this passage. Now, now just think, where do we see God's mercy? Where do we see His grace? Well, first we see it in, in the warning that He gave. Being a father has changed the way that I read some of these texts, and this is one of them. Because sometimes Jesse will misbehave. And I'll say, Jesse, you don't quit. That's going to give you a whipping. 
And maybe your kid's too big for that. Maybe you say, you're going to get grounded. You're going to lose whatever, whatever consequence it is. And if, you know, we've all had that happen to us. If you don't stop, this is going to happen. What's God say? This is, gonna, this is coming down the pipe. And sometimes in my own personal situation, you know, Jesse will be like, you know what, I don't really care. And she doesn't say this, but this is what's communicated. I don't really care what you're saying, old man. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then sometimes it's, okay, Father, I will stop. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't do the, okay, God, I'm going to stop. He's like, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Now, God didn't have to give him that warning. So that, that's an act of mercy, an act of grace. And what does what does Daniel say in verse 27? He says, Nebuchadnezzar, change your ways. You've got a chance. Change your ways. Maybe this will be prolonged. Maybe your prosperity will keep going. And 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 your and, and this this judgment will be will be stalled out. But God warned Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't have to do that. Another way we see his grace is in withholding judgment for a year. For a year. Now, why did he do that? We don't know. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar said, you know, Daniel, you're right. I think I'm going to change my ways. If he did that, it would have been one of those things we've talked about before where it was reforming without repentance. And so the heart was still crooked. And so he, he ended up going back to the things that he had once done, maybe even got worse. Um, but the Bible doesn't say anything about him changing. I think probably what happened was God said, this is what's going to happen. Daniel said, you need to change your ways. And Nebuchadnezzar just kept doing what he was doing. For a year. For a year. Now, God didn't judge him for a year because he was giving him a chance to repent. Now, I mentioned this text earlier, but in 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about people who are going to come along in the last days that are scoffers. They'll look and they'll say, uh, where's the promise of, of Christ coming? And, and they'll begin to mock and, and scoff at Christians. They'll, they'll say, well, things have been going on uh, just like they always have, where's the sign of His coming? And 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 Peter says, God's not con it's not slow as some con uh, as some count slowness. And why does He say that Jesus is delaying and coming back? He says He is patient with us because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. In other words, God is giving him a chance to repent. Romans two, Paul says, don't think lightly of the goodness of God towards you, because God's goodness leads us to repentance. With Noah. Did God send the flood right away? Well, no. 120 years. There was that span that people could repent. And still the only people that got on the boat were Noah and his family. Jonah, he went to Nineveh. What did he say? Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What happened? They had a chance to repent. And they did. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance to repent, but he didn't do it. And because of that, he was judged. Now I want to tell you, we need to be thankful for His mercy. We need to be thankful for His grace because if, if it wasn't for His grace and His mercy, we'd all be destroyed. Uh, Lamentations 3.22 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. Psalm 103, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I mean, over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that because of God's goodness, because of His grace towards us, we're not consumed. We're not destroyed, even though we deserve it. We also see it in Him being restored to His throne. God is gracious even in punishment. Now, I just want you to look at the last verse, verse 37. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, 
and honor, now always before him himself, the King of Heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And the last lesson I learned from this is that we need, we need to be humble or God may humble us for us. We need to take care of it ourselves or God might take care of it for us. Now, pride is an easy sin to slip into. Now, I want you to look at verse 30 again. And notice the pronouns. As, as King Nebuchadnezzar is walking up on his palace roof, and he's walking around, he's seeing the grandeur of Babylon. Look at the pronouns that he uses as he talks about it. Verse 30. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as royal residence for the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Yeah, that reminds me of the New Testament where Jesus tells a parable about a farmer has a whole bunch of crops. He says, What shall I do with all my crops? I'll build me some more barns or a bigger barn and, and all this stuff. And it's me, my, there's no thought of God, no recognition of His Son, no recognition of His, of his, of his reign. It's all me and mine. And the Bible says that, that very night God looked down and said, You fool, what's that, what good is that wealth going to do you? Because this night your soul will be required of you. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look at this city. It's all about me. And Babylon was impressive. It was a very old city, but his father before him was also king, and he had done a lot to build it up. Nebuchadnezzar beautified it. You ever heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? One of those was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That would have been in the city when Nebuchadnezzar was there. There was an inscription that archaeologists have found where Nebuchadnezzar calls his palace, quote, the marvel of mankind, the center of the land, the residence, the dwelling of majesty, end quote. Pretty impressive place. The walls around the sea were enormous. It was beautiful. And Nebuchadnezzar's walking there, and he's looking around. He's seen all the walls. He's seen all the towers. He's seen the, the hanging gardens that he built for his wife. And... And it's just beautiful. And he says, I've done this all for me. These towers and these walls, that's not for protection. That's because I, it's, it's just to display my splendor and my glory. It's all about me. This guy was full of himself. But, but look, turn back, and I know that I don't usually do this, but I want you to jump back to chapter 2, verses 36 and 38, because he says it's all about me. It's all about my power, my glory, my might, my strength. Look at verse 36. And this was the dream now. Dream Now we will tell you the, its, its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You're the head of gold. In other words, he knew... God was the one who had given this to him. He had been told that point blank. He was not the source of it, but he still said, it's all about me. So God brought judgment on him. He makes him go insane. He makes him think that he's an animal. And we don't know exactly what happened with this. Um, there is a mental illness called zoanthropy. Some people think this is what God struck him with. It's, it's where people think that they are turning into an animal or they are an animal. It's possible that's what happened. We don't know. Uh, but, but whatever it was, it was supernatural and it debased him. He lost his faculties. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? When people just aren't in touch with 
can we can get a bunch of pride in our hearts. We can be strutting around. It doesn't take very much to put us on our backs. God can do that. I've been doing martial arts for a while, and one of the things that one of the things that we did in Hokkaido, which I, I stayed the longest, um, one of the things that we started out doing is break falls. So if you know if Jason were to knock me down. Hopefully, I would fall so that I wouldn't get hurt. And I mean, I've been I've been tossed and thrown and flipped and all kinds of things. And by the grace of God, I've never been injured. And I, I've done it for years. It's just second nature. Well, a while back, actually, just a couple weeks ago, I was at jujitsu and a guy took me down. But guess what? And I've been thinking just a couple weeks ago. You know, people here don't know how to fall correctly. Maybe I should talk to my instructor and have him let me show them how to fall because I don't want anybody to get hurt. Well, guess what? Somebody takes me down. Guess who doesn't do a break fall? This guy right here. And it hurt. And it, it hurt bad. And I thought, you know what? You big moron. <laughs> You're thinking that you can do all this stuff and here you are. You, you don't even do the most basic break fall. Pride goes before the fall. In that case, literally. But isn't that how easy it is? We'll get so puffed up, think, well, I can do this job, I can do that. And we start getting the focus on ourselves and our, on our own abilities. And, and before too long, something will come up, and we just totally blow it. Now, I say that because God has a way of humbling us. Maybe it's something big like the Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it's something small. But we need to be humble because God resists the proud. Peter says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So how do you humble yourself? What's humility? Well, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not looking out for number one. It's putting other people first. Recognizing that if you have some good thing in your life, it didn't come from you. It didn't come from, from, from people. It came from God. One of the things I've been doing lately is I've been listening to the Bibles. I've been... Uh, driving to work and back. And I've been in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that keeps coming up is is this pride. Pride, pride, pride. You remember there's the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. They go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee compares himself to the tax collector. And he says, thank you, I'm not like this guy. And it, how easy is that? We look around at the, the people at our work, the people in our family, and we say, whew, I'm not perfect, but I'm glad I'm not doing that. That's pride. We need not do that. We need to be humble because God can and He may choose to humble us if we don't take care of it ourselves. And it appears from our text that Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson because the verbs at the end of this text where he's talking about extolling, praising, honoring Him, those indicate that it's an ongoing action. He extolled, he glorified God, and he kept doing it because God taught him finally He's in charge. He is sovereign. God rules on the earth. He does what He pleases. And again, that can be uncomfortable for us, but you know what? God's got a lot better plan than we do. He knows a lot better than we do. And it's that reassuring thing that no matter what we face, we've got a loving Heavenly Father that's in charge of it, that's in control. God can do His will, and He will do it. The question is, will you do His will? Will you follow what God says? What does God say? Well, the Bible talks about living a holy life, being filled with the Spirit, 
not not walking, not fulfilling these needs of the flesh as Christians. Are you willing to do that? As a non-Christian, the Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Are you willing to come and, and turn your life over to the Lord? Are you willing to do God's will?